Good morning, Grace City, and good morning, guests. My name is Matt Hand, the pastor of Grace City Church here in downtown Denver. I hope that you're having a good 4th of July weekend, and thank you for taking time to kind of pause and come together in this way to worship and to grow, to challenge ourselves with this new series to think Christianly about culture. Back in the early 2000s, I spent the 4th of July holiday in St. Louis, and it was incredibly hot and humid, I assume, as it always is this time of year. We went to a St. Louis Cardinals baseball game in the old Bush Stadium, which is like completely enclosed, just like a pit of humidity. And as, as miserable as that weather was, I had this moment that I'll always remember where at the conclusion of the Star Spangled Banner, which of course everyone's singing along and cheering and all that kind of thing. But at the conclusion of that song, a new hit by Toby Keith entitled Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue came over the sound system and everyone around me is singing along. And at the end of the song, there's this just uproar of applause and cheering and shouting and like, yeah, America. And, and by the way, if you don't know, and it's okay if you don't know, this is a country music song that basically says, here's what's going to happen to you if you mess with the United States the way the Taliban had just done on 9-11. Okay, so nothing unifies like a common enemy, right? And so we're there for the 4th of July. We all hate what has just been done to our country. This song comes on. Everybody's excited. Everybody's patriotic. Now, 18 or so years later, we live in a very different cultural moment where now we have something like cancel culture, where we're being told that most of what you know about American history is actually not correct, or at, at best, it's only part of the story written by the winners, and it left out a lot of important details. Some of the extreme fringes of this group and some other groups are going around and just literally taking down every monument to basically any name in American history and saying our heritage is all messed up. It's irredeemable. You know, we just need to blow the whole experiment up and start over. So the very different feel about like, hey, is it okay to be patriotic? Is it okay to say like, God bless America in the kind of culture today? And to, to paint admittedly with very broad strokes, we have a deep divide in our country and in our culture you know, basically aligning two parties against each other. You've got kind of the, the traditional rural heartland America that has one particular stance toward our heritage and toward culture. And then you have a more urban, progressive kind of coastal America that has the complete opposite posture toward things like patriotism, our heritage, and our culture. And this brings me to a number of much larger questions about our culture, concerns about our culture, which is why we're starting this new series today, Counterculture. I don't probably need to tell you that COVID-19 is not the only pandemic type thing that is raging in our culture right now. Injustice is a pandemic in our country. Consumerism is a pandemic in our country. The disregard for human life, and especially for innocent and helpless human life, is a pandemic. 
homelessness and the opioid crisis, especially in our urban centers, is a pandemic. The social engineering of gender and sexuality is a pandemic. The identity crisis of Western culture as a whole, like where did we come from? Who are we? Where are we going? Why are we here? What's this all about? Is a pandemic. And I could go on and on describing things that are concerning to us, where if we look at the pages of scripture, we would say, this is not how God intended things to be. This is not how God built things. This is not his created purpose or his redeemed purpose. So God gave us his word. He gave us the Bible to say, this is who I am. And this is what I require of you because this is kind of like your ownership, man. This is how life works in my world. And here are my promises. And here's my gospel about how things get fixed when they go very, very wrong. And a lot of the deep divisions that we find in our culture now a lot of the clashes are a direct result of us just simply ignoring God's way and doing it our own way. So we're starting this new series, Counterculture, and Jesus indicated to anyone who would listen to him in his most famous sermon that here's kind of like an overview stance of followers of me and culture, and that is you are in the world, but the world is not in you. These famous words from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you followers are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And what he's saying is, you are a part of these things, and yet you have a distinct character and identity that is separate from these things. Notice, he doesn't say you are the earth, you are the world. He says you are the the something of that. You're the salt. You're the light. You are distinct. This has often been summarized as we are to be in the world but not of the world. In other words, countercultural. And I want to begin this morning this series with the topic of allegiance. Number one, because it's 4th of July weekend and we're thinking about this and talking about this. But number two, because allegiance is a foundational topic to understand because this will impact everything else that we ever talk about. Like, what does it mean to be countercultural? Is he saying to be more traditional? Is he saying be more progressive? Should I go here? Should I go here? Should I do this? Should I do this? And understanding our allegiance to Jesus Christ and to his word and to his gospel is what lays the foundation for all of this. So four questions as we go through this this morning. Number one, what are we loyal to and why? Number two, what was Jesus loyal to? Number three, what does Jesus call you to be loyal to? And who does he call? And on what basis does he call them? And then finally, what are we learning from this? So just some summary application points. So number one, what are we loyal to? And and what I'm asking here is what do we default to being loyal to and why? Okay, And, and I want to answer this question on several different levels just to really kind of flesh out what I'm talking about. And I have a theory, by the way, that that the things we are loyal to, the people that we are loyal to, the people and the ideologies that we're loyal to, we are loyal to those things because they make us feel safe, they make us feel significant, and they make us feel satisfied. So for example, political parties. Many of you that I'm talking to are loyal to a particular political party. 
You know, you're a donkey or an elephant, you're a left or a right, you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or maybe a few of you something else. But have you ever thought about why am I so loyal to this party that kind of like whatever man or woman they tell me that I'm supposed to elect, I'm going to automatically vote for that person. Or whatever whatever legislature they bring forward and say, hey, let's pass these laws, even if it's radically different than where we were at a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, I kind of just automatically support what comes out of my party and I automatically tend to dismiss or even argue against what comes out of the other party. Why is that? What, what, what do you want in association with a particular political party? I mean, isn't it true, as altruistic as we like to think we are, as much as we'd like to think we're the kind of people who would just support someone who would be for everyone? In reality, what we want with our allegiance to a particular party is we want control. We want power. We want people who think like me to be the ones who are setting policy for everyone else. Because we don't like it when people who disagree with us make the policy and then we have to submit to something or be liable when we would say, I don't agree with that. I don't like that. Okay, so that's political parties. Political parties give us a sense of physical or emotional safety. They give us a sense of identity. Like, I know who I am because I associate with this kind of ideology. Uh, a second example that's it's not as hard to talk about is just brand loyalty. And it can be the brand of anything, shoes, clothes, cars, food, drink, etc., etc. You ever thought about what do you want by being loyal to a particular brand? I mean, some of you would say, well, I, I want quality and I want consistent quality. I want ubiquity. I want to be able to go different places, different cities. I want to be able to travel on vacation and find the same thing, you know, Coke Zero. It's everywhere. And some of you just want that. Some of you want status, right? To, to, to buy a certain thing, to wear a certain shirt or a certain shoe or drive a certain car says, I have money. I'm doing well in life, right? And, and certain brands give us that sense of like, I'm someone. I've kind of arrived because I can afford to wear this or to drive this. Others of you with the brands just want enjoyment. It's like, you know what, I, I don't know, I've always, I've always had this soda instead of this one. I like it, I enjoy it, I'm not going to switch. But safety, significance, satisfaction. One more example, some of you are very, very loyal to your family of origin, like your biological family. Others of you have kind of shunned or even ditched your family of origin, and you are very loyal to your tribe. And I would venture to guess that whichever side of that you fall on, maybe you go back and forth even, the underlying reason is the same. That is, at the core, you wanted love. You wanted affirmation. You wanted acceptance. You wanted a group of people who told you, like, we like you just the way you are. You belong here. We'll take care of each other. And some of you found that in family. Some of you found that in loyalty to a tribe, a group of friends, okay, that tell you you're a someone. Well, when we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who planted this church in Corinth, just kind of comes out at the church, and it just feels like, 
he's a little irritated. He's a little annoyed about a few things that he's, he's hearing a lot of negative negativity and he's got to get it off his chest. And, and in verse 10 of first Corinthians one, he says, I appeal to you brothers and sisters by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or even I follow Christ. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Paul had planted this church. You understand some loyalty to him. You know, Apollos, Cephas, who his other name, you probably better know him as the Apostle Peter. You know, what's underlying that? Why are some choosing loyalty to this person or this person? And I think underneath it all, it's identity and status. You know, some are saying, well, I associate with the guy who planted this church in the first place. Excuse me. And then others are saying, well, I associate with the guy who has a reputation for being like a Greek scholar. You know, he, he's more knowledgeable. He's more nuanced than Paul. You know, Paul's got rough edges. This guy. This guy's more cultured. I'm loyal to him. And others are like, well, Peter, you know, Jesus said on Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, so I'm building on Peter. And it, and it all comes down to this different loyalties led to this division. And we know that the basis of loyalty was basically identity and status because that's the next thing that Paul's gonna take on in the letter is basically say, hold on, time out. Let me talk to you for a moment about your identity and your status, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But first, let me just apply this first point to you and just ask you to do some deliberate thinking about what or who are you loyal to and why. And it's great to pick a few harmless examples like a restaurant chain. Like, why do I always go to Chick-fil-A instead of, I don't know, Burger King or McDonald's? Why do I always drink Coke Zero instead of Pepsi equivalent? I See, I don't even know because you can tell what family what our family is loyal to, okay? Um, why, am I, why am I loyal to particular brands of clothing and cars and that sort of thing? And it'd be interesting to kind of do a self-diagnosis to find some common themes of the things that you like and are loyal to. But then shift to a few more serious things and ask yourself, why am I so loyal to that political party? I mean, in reality, if they have gone from here way over to here in just a matter of four or eight or 12 years, just a few election cycles, you know, maybe it's okay to be loyal to them here, but, but am I really thinking through this? Why that ideology? Why do I put my foot down on that and say, oh no, you, you've got to believe this. Why those authors or bloggers or podcasters or pundits? Why are you loyal to them? And now let's move to this. Who or what was Jesus loyal to? Well, let's start evaluating our loyalties in light of Jesus' loyalties. Jesus was born, obviously, into a very different time than what we live in today, but in many ways, it was strikingly similar. Okay? Born in Israel during the reign of King Herod the Great, and no sooner does Herod the Great find out that Jesus is born king of the Jews, and he tries to murder him so he doesn't have a rival. Jesus is raised as an Orthodox Jew with a close-knit family and community in Nazareth of Galilee. 
Israel at that time was a client state of the Roman Empire, which means basically if you pay a ton of taxes to us, we will occupy your land but give you a significant measure of freedom because life works better if we just tax you like crazy and give you freedom. Okay, well, what I want you to observe for just a few moments with me is that during the days of Jesus, there were not just five, but I'm going to simplify it to five. There were basically five parties or sects that responded to the social and the cultural moment that they found themselves in. Some of them were basically secular, but had a religious tint to them because back then everything did. And some of them were more overtly religious. Okay, so I want to draw a little chart for you just real quick to help you understand a little bit about this. So this is the this is the spectrum, and the negative over here is going to represent kind of a negative response to who's in power, to what's generally going on in culture right now. We disagree with what's going on in culture. We disagree with those in authority. And the plus over here is like, we agree, we support them. You know, and again, there's religious support and secular support. So the most extreme form of support, so way over here, came from a group known as the Herodians. The Herodians were less a religious group than these others that I'm going to put up here, but they would basically say, hey, whatever, whatever the Caesars want, whatever Rome wants, whatever Herod wants, and that's where they get their name, we're going to support them because that's what makes life work. On the religious side of that, you had this group called the Sadducees, and I'll just abbreviate that. They were the aristocratic Jews, the, the priestly caste. And while they would often religiously disagree with what was going on in government, they said, you know what? We like our power. We like our privilege. So we're going to go along to get along. And they're constantly supporting the Roman government in just outlandish policies because that's what kept them in power. Now, at the, at the opposite extreme, again, you have a religious and a secular group. The secular group, or predominantly secular, again, they, there was always a religious tent. They were called zealots. And these are people that are like, let's literally go off in the wilderness somewhere. Let's equip ourselves with weapons. Let's train out there like the Taliban does today. And let's, let's find an insurrectionist leader, you know, some, some kind of messiah that we can get behind. And let's go overthrow the government. And then the, the more religious version of that were called the Essenes. And these were people that like translated the Qumran scrolls, for example. And they, they lived at Masada, some of them. You know, they just, they basically withdrew from society. And they're like, culture's messed up. Society's messed up. We don't agree with the laws. We don't agree with the policies. So we're just going to withdraw and kind of live a parallel community way over here. And then in this big middle section, you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the, the populist group. You know, they were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Many of them, the, the lawyers, the scribes, the teachers, the rabbis, they were Pharisees. And they, they would go along to get along sometimes, but they were also like, ah, we're loyal to the law of God. And so they would kind of go back and forth. And my question, well, two, two questions and two observations. Number one, who did Jesus align himself with? So when Jesus comes, you know, you've got the eternal son of God, the creator, the Lord, and he comes in human flesh to save us. So he's down here making a point about culture. 
Who did he align with? Who was his, who was his tribe? Who was his group? And if you know the New Testament, you know the answer is nobody. I mean, one of my takeaways from this little exercise is that simply Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is not on this spectrum. He didn't try to be on this spectrum. The flip side of this question is who did Jesus critique the most? Well, ironically, he critiqued the Pharisees the most. You know, he, he didn't so much critique the people who lived at the extremes because they were so extreme and they were fighting each other. And I think to most people, it was fairly obvious that Jesus was not aligned with either one of them. Though certainly every group tried to make Jesus their puppet for at least some period of time. But Jesus basically saved most of his critique for the Pharisees. And I think the reason why is because he knew that's the group that most people will confuse me to be in association with. And I want to make sure everyone understands that I am not a Pharisee. And he uses these words before, I believe it was Pilate, when he says, my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. You are not going to find me on this spectrum. Why? Because my meat, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. My priority, my allegiance is the father who sent me on a mission. And now I am loyal to him and I am loyal to that mission I am loyal to who I am. And I don't mean that in some like be true to yourself sort of way. He's God. So no matter what temptations or attacks came from anywhere, he was loyal to himself and his character. Okay. Let's follow this up with now question three. Who did Jesus call to be loyal to him? And on what basis? I want to compare this kind of like to a draft. Okay. So, so Jesus comes, Messiah comes to earth. He's not a part of any of these parties, didn't try to affiliate or align with any of these parties, didn't try to say, yeah, oh, that's that they kind of describe who I am. So if you're coming to earth and you're building a team, you think of this like a sports draft, right? And some coaches have different philosophies for how they build their teams. Like, oh, I'm drafting for speed this year. We were too slow last year. Other, other people, we got pushed around at the line of scrimmage. We're going to build just size and strength. And that might slow our team down, but we're going to win the line of scrimmage. And they have a draft philosophy. Well, what was Jesus' draft philosophy? You know, on what basis does he decide to include people in his kingdom invitation? And I want to just point out a few names to you. It's interesting. Matthew, also known as Levi, and Zacchaeus were Jewish tax collectors, which basically puts them over here. Herodians, they are going along to get along. They're dismissing many things about their own Jewish law, the Torah, and ignoring what God told them, like live distinctly in these ways. Well, now, because I make a good profit ripping off my own counterparts in Jewish society. So Jesus calls them, okay? Then Jesus calls a guy like Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. In fact, he's a leader of Pharisees. He's a rabbi of Pharisees. Simon, one of his 12 disciples, was a zealot, okay? Jesus goes and picks this guy and he's like, okay, you, you wanna sharpen knives and go slit some Roman soldiers' throats and start an insurrection. And, and so you've got these different categories. Then, then most of the people that Jesus chose were just like Galilean working class. I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of living in here, not leading anything, but they were probably loyal to the Torah. They were probably attending synagogue, people like Peter and James and Andrew, the fishermen, right? They're living in here. 
But here's what's interesting, and I want to make this point. When, when Jesus calls a zealot, on what basis does he call him? And what is he calling him to? He's not saying, hey, zealot, you need to be, you know, lighten up. You're way too stiff on the fundamentalism stuff. Okay? Nor did he come to Levi and Zacchaeus and guys like that and say, you are way too liberal. You need to be more concerned. Let's get over here with these guys. Okay? No, you know what he called Matthew and Zacchaeus to? He said, come follow me. Simon, follow me. Disciples, Nicodemus, follow me. All these people he runs into, follow me, follow me, follow me. He's not calling them to be more liberal, more conservative, more Baptist, more Presbyterian, more centrist. He's saying, follow me. And on what basis? How can this guy come just as much as this guy? Because the basis of Jesus' call is sheer grace. It is not any of their performance. It's not their ideology. It's not that they had chosen the the right patriotism or the right allegiances. He was saying, basically, you're all wrong, and now I call you to come and follow me on the basis not of what you have accomplished, but on the basis of what I have done and am about to do on a cross and an empty tomb for you. We are brought together by grace. 1 Corinthians 1, I said that Paul goes on and he talks about identity and status. So look at this. In verses 26 through 31, he comes back and he says, for consider your calling. Okay, Why are you guys arguing with each other? Why are you like, no, my party's the right party. No, no, you're, you're, too, you're too conservative. You need to be more liberal. Lighten up. You're, you're, you're holding on to the past. Let's progress, okay? Okay, no, Jesus comes to them through Paul. And then he's speaking and says, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And for Paul, there's no mistaking the Lord is Jesus. He's saying, you want to know where your allegiance belongs? It belongs to the one who lifted you out of your poverty, out of your foolishness, out of your brokenness, out of your nothingness by sheer grace. I just gave you the free gift of salvation. So now this is the church. Is everyone called from these different cultures and backgrounds and allegiances and identities and saying, come, follow Jesus, okay? Real quick in closing, what do we learn from this? Just a couple quick application points. First of all, give your fundamental allegiance to Christ. What did Jesus say over and over when he met people? Leave your boats and what? Leave your tax office and what? Deny yourself, take up your cross and what? Give your possessions to the poor and what? Over and over, Jesus said, and come follow me. Come follow me. Jesus is commanding that people give him our priority allegiance, our first love. 
And in the Bible, you see it over and over again in the gospel stories. People came up with tons of excuses. Okay, Jesus, I will follow you later. I got this thing I got to do first. I got this person I got to meet with. I got to bury my father who's not even dead yet. And they just they drummed up all kinds of excuses. And Jesus is like, okay, that's fine. But that's not what it looks like to follow me. Following me looks like laying down your boats and your nets and just coming and saying, Jesus, I follow you. I give you my allegiance. And friends, what hinders you and me from doing that is something the Bible calls idols. Things in our heart that we love more than God. The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments goes like this. You shall have no other gods before me. And some of you will listen to this and be like, oh, come on. I mean, have you looked at our culture? Like, I understand way back then they had gods, they had idols, they had those things, but, um, but we don't have those anymore. We don't have idols. We don't have false gods. What well, we do, we do. And, and, and you probably don't have like a little shrine in your home or something that you literally bow down to or pray to, but really, what is a god when you think about it? It's something you love something you fear, something you serve, something you prioritize, something you sacrifice to or for. And so the gods of our culture are not little idols like Zeus or Apollo or, you know, whatever, Aphrodite. But they're things like expressive individualism, power, control. The American dream is an idol for tens of millions of people because they have created a God of status and pleasure and freedom and prosperity and entertainment. And they would sacrifice anything if they knew I could have that, what I want, what I crave down the road. And I'm loyal to these things. And friends, why do we gladly serve and sacrifice for these things? I'm going back to where I started. It's because they boost our sense of safety, our sense of significance, our sense of satisfaction. And recognize, friends, that the reason that Jesus can call us to be loyal to him, to give our first allegiance to him, is because he is the son of God, because he is the savior and Lord, yes. But he can call us to follow him and to give our allegiance to him because he says all of these things, safety, significance, even satisfaction, you can only truly find in me. Like I am your rock, I am your defense, I am your shield. Read through the Psalms and find all the promises of God's protection and safety, not just for this brief life, but for eternity to be found in Christ and to be safe in God forever. To know that Jesus is your decisive validator, the one person in the world that if everyone else was against you and Jesus says, I am for you, I am for you, hang in there, I've got you, you're important, you matter. That's the one important voice, the one who's saying you're, you, you matter not because of what you achieved, but because of what you received through me. Secondly, So first I said, give your fundamental allegiance to Christ. Second, repent of finding your identity in something other than Christ. So even as I'm talking this morning or take time this week, first of all, to recognize it. Maybe there are blind loyalties, that there are things that you're loyal to, things that you go back to over and over again. And you would say, you know what, now I think about it, I don't even know why I am loyal to those things. It's just tradition, it's nostalgia or, you know, I don't know. 
But, but dig into that. Be wise to ask God to show you what, what, what is it with these loyalties. And then, of course, there are going to be other things that are identity loyalties. You're loyal to them because they give you your sense of self-worth. They give you your sense of significance. And when I say repent of finding your identity in something other than Christ, I mean not only recognize it and be like, oh, yeah, I can see where I'm doing that with this political party, this ideology, sexuality, all these different layers of your identity. But to repent is to turn from, is to change your mind and to walk in a new direction, okay? It's not enough to just say, you know, Matt, is this really as big a deal as like other sins? Like, I don't know, cheating on your spouse or something? Well, ironically, isn't this like cheating on your spouse? I mean, if, if Christ says you, the church, are his bride, he loves you and he thinks of you that way, and he's married you to himself to give you every blessing for all eternity. And we're like, well, you know, I, I know I'm supposed to be exclusively reserved for you. I know I took that vow, but, you know, and I still mostly am. I'm still mostly with you, God. I mean, in more instances than not, I think I show allegiance to you. You, you see how that wouldn't work in a conversation with your spouse? I know I made that vow. I'm mostly on board with being faithful to you, but not always, but, you know, no biggie. No, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So we repent and turn from it. And then finally, as we are, as we are giving our fundamental allegiance to Christ, as we're repenting of finding our identity on other things, finally, evaluate all your other loyalties in light of your priority commitment to Jesus and the gospel. And honestly, friends, we're going to get into this. Most things are not all bad or all good, okay? Certainly nothing in this world, physically speaking or ideologically speaking, apart from Christ is like the boogeyman by itself because that came from satanic powers and nothing is the savior. Nothing is the fix it for everything because that is Jesus. And all you got to do is read Genesis 1 and 2 and understand there's probably some kernel of truth, some elements of goodness in the things that I am disloyal to, I disagree with, and there's probably some dark elements to the things I am loyal to because of Genesis 3. Okay, so evaluate, for example, your political parties. Where we go racing to these polarized extremes and we're like, mine is right and yours is wrong. And, and we just talk past each other. We highlight all the good that we stand for. We highlight all the negative stuff that they stand for. And we act like that tells the story. And, and let me just close with this. Do you know what giving Jesus your fundamental allegiance does for you? It sets you free from that kind of garbage. It sets you free to listen to people who disagree with you because even if they disagree with you, even if they tell you you're just dead wrong, you aren't finding your identity in their approval of you anyway. And you aren't finding your approval in the party that they're about to point out something wrong with. So your allegiance to Jesus just liberates you from all kinds of just intentional, deliberate blindness to what's actually going on in the things that we are loyal to. It lets you listen. It frees you to love people across the aisle from you. Again, I mean, just, just imagine Simon the Zealot and you got tax collectors in the same group of 12 running around with Jesus everywhere. And you know the one guy's like, I'd like to slit your throat when you fall asleep. And the tax collectors are like, I'd like to find a way to tax you for that. Okay, I mean, how, how do they get along? Because their fundamental allegiance is to Jesus. 
They understand I'm defined by his grace to me. And in the coming weeks, I want to say more about how a Jesus follower is impacted in our relationship with culture and different aspects of culture through this allegiance to Jesus. So pledge your allegiance to Jesus. Pledge your allegiance to King Jesus and ground your sense of identity, safety, and satisfaction in him. This is where living a countercultural life, this is where being a countercultural church starts with our allegiance to King Jesus.